over the last few years. And it's a story of her battle, her journey with cancer and God at the same time. And uh, so as we hear it, our expectation, we talked about this before the service, that when we hear people's stories, um, they inspire us and encourage us in our in our own journeys. They're, um, they're sort of memory points of this is what God's done before and we can we can trust him and expect him to do similar in, in the future. So let's be inspired and encouraged. Liz has been, many of you who are near to hope might not have seen Liz or seen this. She hasn't, she's been sort of in hiding for four or five years. So it's really special to have Liz back in the flesh, in the building. And um, yeah, let's give her a cheer actually. It's really good to have her here. Yeah. Yeah. So Lord, as, as Liz shares with us now, we pray that you, uh, you bless her as she speaks and we pray that you feed and encourage us, build up your church through her today. Thank you. Amen. Wow. I apologize for the amount of blubber factor there is going to be in this testimony because it will be. So if you haven't got tissues, there's an extra packet on my chair. Um, thank you for that amazing worship. I mean, wow. Talk about welcoming me home. It was beautiful. Thank you. Um, as Chris said, um, I haven't been here for a while. I am actually a founder member of this church along with, I think, Esther and I think there's probably about two or three of us left that, that were founder members, but, um, it's so good to be home and it does feel like home. Um, I was only supposed to have 20 minutes. I can tell you I cannot do this in 20 minutes. So I'm sorry, but it's going to be a little bit longer. Right. Psalm 46, verses 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. And the Lord Almighty is with us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress. Hang on to that verse. I'm a bit of a geek, so I had to look up the roots of things because I don't just like understanding. I don't like my own understanding. I like to know the definition of where it's come from and what it was originally intended for. And I was surprised that the word be in this particular psalm means chaff, as in the chaff and the wheat. Interesting. Still means to let go, abandon, or withdraw. To know is to recognize, understand, and can range in meaning from the mere acquisition and understanding of information to the intimacy in relationships. And God, he's the mighty one. He is majesty. He is the great one. I was really surprised when I looked at that and thought, wow. I was then prompted to go back. And many of you who are new to this church may not know about it. Living Free Course coming, so if you haven't been on it, attend it. Um, We do a lot of original design prayer and freedom prayer and also something called now words in this church. And 
I had my very first original design prayer back in 2006. And one of the things in that original design prayer was Psalm 46, God is our refuge. In 2017, I came for some now words between the breast cancer and the leukemia. And I had, pray me, know me, be still, and know that I am God. And in 2019, post-leukemia, I came for some more now words. And guess what? Be still and know that I am God. So, peeps, that's where we're going. I've had lots and lots of other words over the years, but these ones really stuck out at me when I was looking through all my original design words and prayer words. And in 2013, bearing in mind that my first diagnosis was in 2016, the words were, pursue the healer, not the healing. Sorry, there's going to be quite a bit of this. In 2014, I was also given the words, enjoy being set apart for my comfort is with you. We have much to accomplish together and the key is our intimacy. I have waited for the time to be right. Nothing is wasted, precious one. Okay? So, if you've never had original design prayer, if you've never had freedom prayer, or if you've never had now words, I recommend it. Because whilst they may not mean something at the time, when you go back and look, you will know that God was with you. In 2015, somebody gave me a picture of being in a rowing boat. It was right, the vision. And it said, I am reaching into the water and pulling people out of the boat, and it's not hard, it's easy. In 2019, Chris came to see me at my home when I was still in isolation. And he said that he felt that my ministry over the last three years had been in a boat And what struck him the most was that at my weakest, God has been his strongest. And finally, in 2017, he who tells the sea thus far and no further, you will not be tested beyond what you can bear. (laughs) Yeah. But God never sleeps. So, here we go. My life before cancer... I was enjoying having moved into my 50s. Yes, I am over 50. I know I don't look it. I spent 18 months helping my parents move, declutter their home after 64 years of marriage, six children, multiple homes, as well as boats and caravans. Trust me, it took 18 months. I was helping plan and organize my best friend's wedding. I was looking forward to my son's graduation he became a bachelor in, as a forensic anthropologist, no less. And I was looking forward to my niece's wedding in Denmark with all my family. I was loving church life, and I was also working as an IT service management consultant. Hopefully, that's the last time your eyes glaze over today. It's standard stuff. Life was good. I decided to take stock of my health as I was in my 50s and get a baseline check done, you know, just double check. And 
it was the usual things. I was expecting, you know, cholesterol and blood pressure and all that good stuff. But it was actually a bit more than that. And they did heart and lungs and, and, and things. Sat in the appointment with the doctor and he went, yeah, pretty good actually. And to be honest, I was surprised it was as good as it was because <laughs> I wasn't very good at keeping fit. And right at the very end, she said, and I'm now going to do a mole check and a breast exam. Hadn't expected that. That's when my world stopped. I was put on a very fast and very scary roller coaster. And I will point out right now, I really hate roller coasters. Having identified a lump... The next two weeks, I was having mammograms, biopsies, examinations. And right from the word go, the the consultant said it was almost certainly cancer. They just needed to find out what type. Within a month, I had a diagnosis and an outline for treatment booked. I told my children immediately, as well as my big sister but I was having to wait to tell the rest of the family because I was due in Denmark at my niece's wedding and I was due at my son's graduation. I thought, okay, I'm going to wait because surgery is booked two weeks afterwards and I did not want to ruin this amazing family time that we were having in Denmark. Yeah, doesn't happen, does it? Two days before we were due to fly, I was told that my surgery was going to happen the day after I came back. So, we made the decision. Friday was family time. Saturday was the wedding. Sunday was meant to be family time. And then on Monday, everybody was going home. Back to America, back to the UK, because I've got a big family. And so, we got through the wedding. And then on Sunday, one by one, I took my siblings aside and my parents. And I told them. And it was not easy. And it was not pleasant. On the Tuesday, I had a lumpectomy, removal of lymph nodes, followed six weeks later by six rounds of chemotherapy. Four and a half months it took. I didn't do well with the chemo, and the level of poison made me incredibly sick. Uh, I lost my hair. Some of you knew me then. And after the last cycle, it was followed by three weeks daily of radiotherapy. So we're now going to have a little fun fact. Radiation is measured on the grey scale. And there is also a scale called BED. And I joke not, it is called the banana equivalent dose. Because bananas naturally contain radiotherapy, or radio, sorry, radioactive isotopes, particularly potassium. Now, being exposed to five grey kills you. I, if you have it in a single dose, that is, sorry. Um, I was exposed to 40 grey over 15 days, 60 seconds at a time. My son, who is a bit of a smart ass. actually worked out that's about 40 billion bananas. I don't really like bananas. Seven months after diagnosis, 
five months of treatments almost every day, trying to live my life, trying to carry on. After radiotherapy, you have one appointment six weeks later, and it stops. That's it. No more contact. I was alone. Now, the adventurous amongst you who may like roller coasters will know that the experience in the front car is very, very different to the experience in the back car. I'd had my front car experience. It was quick. But the virtual reality is is that all my emotions, all my processing, and everything else was in the rear car. And suddenly... I was left with feelings, emotions, and all sorts of stuff to process that I had no idea how I could do it. The roller coaster wasn't moving, but I had all this stuff. I actually entered a period of depression for about two months, and the smallest thing would trigger me crying or upset me or send me off, and I just I had no idea what was going on. And I would say to myself, you are cancer-free. I am alive. But I know that because I worked all the way through that first surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and everything was there, I hadn't processed a single thing. And it was now hitting me like you wouldn't believe. So, like I explained at the beginning, I came and had some now words to try and help me deal with what was going on, saying to God, you know, what now? I've come through this. What, what's next? Because I don't understand. I asked him what work would look like. How do I stay well? How do I build my health up? Where are my priorities? Recognizing that my fatigue was not laziness. It was the fact that my body just couldn't handle what it had been through. Especially the damage of the radiotherapy. Remember those bananas. Trying to ease back into some sort of social life and recognising I needed boundaries both physically and mentally to deal with what was going on. I joined a cancer rehab group. I attended a Living Well, Keep Fit class. um, And I met up with other cancer survivors. I spent the year up to the first anniversary, or the five months or whatever it was, up to the first anniversary. I went for afternoon tea at the Ivy to celebrate a year being cancer-free. I went to a spa. I was with family and friends. I was just trying to, to... grasp something back that said you're alive, it's okay, keep going I'd had a bit of a cold and a cough and I was having trouble shifting it I'd had my first annual mammogram so I was like do you know what I'm going to go and I'm going to celebrate and I'm going to put new memories over where this cancer and this chemo was I don't want to remember September the 16th and October this because I'm a real date person by the way 
And I didn't want to remember those dates for those things. So I decided to book a holiday to America with my children. They're not children, they're adults. Um, went to the doctor, got the approval, got all the advice, got the travel assurance, ready to rock and roll. We booked flights and we were off. I was advised to take aspirin because during the chemotherapy, I had this thing called a pick line and it got a clot in it. So I'd had a blood clot, so they're going, long haul flight, take aspirin. Okay. It's my trip to America. We arrived in Boston. I was incredibly excited to see my brother. And that night when I went to bed and I got my pajamas on, I noticed that I had bruising all down one side of my body. And I thought it's a bit odd. Spoke to my daughter and we went, I must have taken too much aspirin. Really thinned my blood because I bruise really easily, as did our mum. And I just thought, I've done too much. I've thinned the blood so badly that I'm just bruising. So we dismissed it. We rationalised it. We carried on with our holiday. It was October. So we wanted to do all the really cheesy things. We went to a corn maze. We sat in a pumpkin patch in a pumpkin farm. (laughs) And we went leafing up a place called the Kankamankas Highway into the White Mountains in New England. And it was just beautiful. I paced myself, I counted my steps, I made sure I didn't get myself overtired. And a few days in, we went for a barefoot walk on the beach. My daughter took that picture, isn't it lovely? And I realised 24 hours later that I had bruising all over the soles of my feet from walking on the sand. I rationalised it back to the aspirin. We had an amazing time, we came home. It was an oasis. It was fantastic. When I got back to Bristol, I got home, having flown, airport, etc. And I now had bruising over my shoulders where my rucksack had been and on my arms and down my legs. And it was all really bad. And I was chatting to my neighbour, telling her I was home. And I said, I think on Monday I need to go to the GP and get a blood test because this isn't right. And she just looked me in the eye and she said, go to A&E. I was jet lagged. I was tired. So I went to bed. Got up the next morning. Took myself to A&E. I arrived at lunchtime. And I went to the desk and I said, look, I just need some reassurance. I've had breast cancer. I've suddenly got all this bruising. Not really sure what's going on. And the more I started to explain, the more upset I got, the more scared I got. And I realised that I had just pushed everything behind me so that I could have my holiday with my kids. They took a blood test. I sat in a little cubicle with a blue curtain in a very comfy chair, actually, with my Kindle. I was quite happy. And they came back and said, we need to do another blood test. A couple of hours later, they came back, and the doctor said, would you like to come with me into this little room? Somebody put a red flag up. It's not good when they say that, is it? She explained that my white cell count 
was high and that what they needed to do was transfer me to Bristol to the haematology centre so that they could investigate what was going on better. But I wasn't allowed to drive myself. So they arranged transport. And while they were doing that, they just thought they'd do another blood test. Okay. To be honest, I wasn't really paying attention. I called my son, who was in Bristol with a friend, and said, could he meet me at the BRI? Now, when I say that the doctor said my white cell count was high, your normal white cell count is between 4 and 11. The first blood test they did, it was 120. So they obviously thought they'd done something wrong, so they took a second one. Only when they took the second one it was 280. Hence why they wanted the third one before they transferred me. At that point, it had risen to 380. I got to the BRI, and they said they were arranging a bed for me. Remember that blinking roller coaster? Somebody just pushed go again, and I was back in the front seat. They took another blood test. I was sat on the bed with Connor and his friend Ellie. And the doctor came in and she said, right, we, know, we think we know what's going on. And I feel really bad about this because I looked at this doctor and I said, as long as you don't tell me it's cancer, I'm okay. <laughs> she must have felt so bad. Because she said... I'm sorry, but I think you've got blood cancer. And we think it's acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It was exactly six weeks after the all clear from my breast cancer. The priority was to reduce the white cell count because the test that they took at 6 o'clock when I reached the BRI showed that it was now 420. So they booked surgery before my organ started to shut down so that they could put a neck cannula in and effectively put me on five hours dialysis overnight to, to clear my blood out. Connor went up to his sister and collected her and told her, when I had the breast cancer, Pascal was with me and we told Connor, and this time Connor had to tell Pascal. The scientific bit about acute lymphoblastic leukemia, also known as ALL. Basically, it just means that a switch is flicked and instead of producing the normal number of um, lymphocytes, it produces way too many. They they very, very immature and they, they just over-overproduce. And what it does is it interferes with the production of normal red cells and white cells and platelets. They don't know what triggers, triggers it. Um, they're not certain. There are a number of risk factors. Significant radiotherapy exposure... Hmm, bananas again. Prior chemotherapy can also be a trigger. 
However, and hear this people, it can also just be an infection. It, it, they don't know what triggers it, but they think those things might. It involves lots of chemotherapy um, through your arm, through your spine, bone marrow biopsies. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Not great. What they have to do is destroy your immune system so that they can then either keep you on long-term chemo or give you a bone marrow stem cell transplant. It's one of those two things. The difference with a bone marrow stem cell transplant compared to heart or liver or, or whatever is, is that your immune system is still you. Okay, It's your immune system. And all they do is suppress it enough so that they can give you the new organ and you go through something called graft versus host. And for some people, there is the rejection of the organ. It just won't let it be. But your whole body is you. It's Your organs are you, your blood's you, except for the bit they take out. With a bone marrow stem cell transplant, it is the equivalent of a full body transplant because what they do is destroy the immune system and the blood and everything, give you the specific cells, in my case B cells, from somebody else and their immune system starts to create the blood cells and the platelets and everything that goes on. So as it develops and grows, it looks at everything in my body and says, you're foreign, I'm going to get you. Because that's what immunity does. So you have a much greater graft versus host scenario going on. And the other thing is, is that if it doesn't work, they can't just put you back on dialysis and take it away. Because it's whole body. So it's an interesting scenario. Some of these are a bit hard, I know, but I think they're relevant. That's me with the neck cannula. It's really hard plastic when it first goes in, but because of your body temperature, over about four days, it goes like this. <laughs> it's really hysterical. Um, you can see there are a couple of the stands with the chemo and the blood and the plasma and the platelets. Um, when I said about the bruising, <laughs> it's serious bruising. The one down the bottom right, um, I was going through three rounds of chemotherapy, 32 days at a time, having hundreds, and I mean hundreds, of blood transfusions and platelet transfusions and all sorts of things whilst they're doing what they're doing. And unfortunately, on one of the rare occasions I was allowed home, I got up and my red cell count was actually much too low. It was actually down at about 64. And it meant that when I stood up, I hadn't got anything. And I face-planted on my kitchen floor, hence the uh, the nose. Side effects. Sickness, bruising, mouth ulcers, which 
in the end required me to have morphine to be able to eat and still didn't work, so I was actually tube-fed because I couldn't eat. Um, Water retention leading to chronic kidney issues. At one point, a four-day chemotherapy actually took 11 days because my kidneys just couldn't flush it through my system. Uh, I was something called neutropenic. Um, Infections, high temperatures to the extent where I encountered something called rigor or rigor, where your temperature is so bad that your whole body does this and you can't stop it. And what they actually do is give you a muscle relaxant to stop it because that's the only way they can make it stop. Um, And I actually lost all feeling in my hands and my feet because of the chemotherapy that I was on. So I couldn't grip, I couldn't turn things. And I still don't have any feeling in my toes. That hasn't come back, unfortunately. The accumulation of chemo and radiotherapy over two cancers resulted in a reduced heart function, a 50% lung function, as well as chronic kidney injury. And that's what I have now. But hey, I'm here. Treatment started, and they started to talk to me about a bone marrow stem cell transplant. And this is where I tell you I have never been so thankful to have five brothers and sisters. (laughs) Because your best possible chance of finding a donor is a sibling match. God is so good, isn't he? I had two 10-10 perfect matches in my siblings. My sister Linda was my donor. She underwent a huge amount of tests, all sorts of things. And I think she said to me once that at one point they took 17 samples of blood in one go. (laughs) I was given more information, so was she, about what would actually happen. The transplant was due to start in February, but was delayed due to the reaction I had to this high-dose chemo that I talked about knackering my kidneys, meaning I was in for 11 days. The week before, the doctor sat us down and confirmed that due to my heart issues and my lung functionality and my kidneys, that despite having a sibling match, which should give me a 40 to 50% of surviving the transplant, I was going into transplant with a 10% chance of living through it. But God. In hospital terms, it's a bit like NASA. They actually refer to transplant day as T0. So at T minus nine, I was admitted to hospital for really big chemo. If you think I haven't had enough chemo before, they give you loads. And you're put into isolation. And by that it means you can't see anybody or do anything. It's masks. It's You're in complete isolation. They had to make sure that they had genuinely killed my own immune system. I had a bone marrow biopsy that they take so that they could check that there was no leukemia and I was in remission. Now, four days before that, 
T minus four, Linda started to have injections. Once a day, four injections. And over those four days, these injections forced the creation of the B cells that I needed. Overproduction within Linda. And what that meant was that increasingly it got uncomfortable. She couldn't move very well and stuff, and it was pretty thing. And she'll tell you, eh, I'm telling you not. T minus one, Linda came into hospital, and you can see her hooked up to the machine. It's a bit like a very sophisticated spin dryer. They take the blood from one arm, process it, remove the cells that I needed, and then give her the rest of the blood back. But they heat it up first because it's got cold by the time. So there's a little thing that heats the blood as it goes back in. It took four hours for the first cycle. Linda produced me 3.7 billion cells. And I've got no idea how they weigh them and measure them, but apparently it's 3.7 billion. She came in on T0, the day of transplant, hooked up to the machine, another four hours. And that day, she upped her game and gave me 4.2 billion I needed a total of 5.25 billion, so I've actually got a couple of billion stored away somewhere, but she has said she'll give me fresh again if I need it. At the end of each donation, the cells are transferred to Filton by blue light. They're weighed and all that sort of stuff, and then they come back. So you can see them going off in the little, you know, freezer bags. That's them going off. And believe it or not, the bit you see at the top, that little pouch, that's about three billion cells. They're orange. They look a bit like blood oranges. That's that's the colour of it. And the nurses tell you when you're going into transplant, they go, it's really disappointing because it's just a transfusion. You're expecting something really big and it's not. <laughs> that's me actually having the cells. That, that picture is the cells up there. That's me having my transfusion. The result of this is, is that my blood is now no longer my blood because the B cells are the ones that produce everything. So if I have a blood test, it shows as my sister. So Linda can now genuinely be in two places at once. My son is a forensic anthropologist and has informed us that if her husband ever gets out of line, he knows exactly what we can do so that they can't prove which one of us did it. I debated about putting this one up. That's me when I was really sick. But the one at the top, you probably can or can't see it, I don't know, but there's a little piece in there. That's the bone marrow at 100 days post-transplant that shows that the transplants worked and I am leukemia-free. That's the bit that said I got through transplant. <laughs> 
18 days post-transplant, they send you out into isolation in hospital accommodation. I still wasn't allowed home, and I had to get to day 100. I was going in for blood tests twice a week and all sorts of other things, but we did it. On the 24th of June, 2018, top right hand, left hand side even, that is day 100, that is me on my balcony at home. I was still in fairly strict isolation and basically for the following nine months it was all about taking care, making sure I didn't come into contact with people that was poorly. Hence, one of the reasons I've not been coming to Hope because there are so many kids, it makes me so vulnerable because of all the bugs and, and all those sorts of things. I came a couple of times but I would have a mask on and stuff but it's just it's too risky. I celebrated my first birthday. I went through the summer and autumn doing loads and loads of things that I wanted to do. I have now completed all my baby vaccinations. Yes, I had to have every single one again. I went in with a 10% chance of survival. I nearly died three times. I only had a 30 to 50% chance of reaching two years. I am a survivor and I beat the odds. I could not have done that without Linda. I could not have done it without the doctors and the nurses, my children, my family my neighbours, my friends, all the prayer, everything. But most of all, I could not have done this journey without God. At home, I have these beautiful glass balls that Linda's been buying me for the last three years. They're called Tree of Life, and they're hand-blown glass with trees of life in and throughout this whole time, the tree of life has become a symbol of significance. In 2019, I came for now words. A change of spiritual season. It's autumn, time for the harvest, life and life in all its fullness and completeness. I have been with you through your trials, seen your resilience and protected you. What seems to have been a negative experience where you were brought low will bear rich fruit and you will rise up many and continue on this path and this journey with me and others. Fear no evil, I am with you every step of the way. Not only has he gone before me, not only is he my provider, he walks alongside me and is my bodyguard. In Ezekiel, it talks about the tree of life, and I understand now that this, is, this particular verse has become huge as part of hope whilst I've not been here. And it talks about the river and the trees on both sides. In Revelation, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right of life. 
from the tree of life, which is in paradise with me. On earth, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, breaking, sorry, breaking 12, bearing 12 crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Again, I get a bit geeky. In Ezekiel, a tree means tree, but in Revelation, it means to be saved, salvation, and deliverance by Yahweh. Life is one's very being, to live, to recover, and to keep alive. In Revelation, it means the dawn and the appearance at sunrise. The healing of the nation is a solitary place in fertile land, and the fruit is compassion, grace, mercy, pity, and kindness. My miracles. Provision of a health test, surviving America, taking myself to A&E, world-class doctors and hospitals here in Bristol, not having organ failure, two 10-10 matches, making it through treatment, being alive and being able to tell my story. I want you to take away one thing because there is so much. I want you to take one thing. And there's about 90 of them, so please do take one. Whether they're for you or whether they're to encourage somebody else. But in each of these little glass vials, there is a mustard seed and a heart. And I want to say to you all that with the smallest mustard seed of faith and the love that God has for each and every one of you, anything is possible and I am living proof. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. A moving story, isn't it? And um, really precious for you to have shared that with us. Um, thank you. I think it's helpful for us also, uh, not just because you know, Liz is one of us and to hear how her journey's been, but it's, it's, it's a big thing around us, isn't it, cancer? And lots of us will know people who have and have been through and so on. And it's also helpful to have that sort of behind-the-scenes view of what, what is it like, what does it mean when people talk about having chemo or radiotherapy? What is the, what's the detail of that? And uh, to be inspired by your trust and your holding on to God when it looked like everything was, was really awful. Yeah. So uh, we felt there was a couple of words that were given before the service. One of them was a, a picture of a, a rising sun, a new horizon, and a time to be courageous. Uh, maybe that speaks to you. Uh, also a sense that um, another one was that uh, when Jesus did his healing of the uh, feeding of the 5,000 
um, there were that was he was pretty pretty exhausted, pretty wiped out. He was he tried to hide from the crowd, and um, and they followed him and ended up feeding five thousand and preaching all day. And it was from this place of exhaustion. I think you mentioned actually in what you were saying something about in that place of weakness and and tiredness finding God there. And a sense that this could be an opportunity to, to if anyone's in any of those particularly challenging places, it's often a point at which God steps in. And uh, and so I'd encourage you, um, if, you'd, if you have a, something you'd like to be prayed for, then do grab someone near you, or come and grab one, me or someone else, and, and we'd love to pray for you. Uh, again, inspired by, by, God's, by God's story through Liz. And I think one of my takeaways from this is that there's this slight mystery, isn't there, to life on earth, that of... Um, of uh, you know, we see some of the goodness of God, um, but but but, there's, but it's hard as well. There's hard stuff that we go through, and there's that that journey of of. of uh, but what we see is God walking with Liz, Liz through this all. So, Lord, we just want to just want to thank you again for for Liz and her story, and we bless we bless her in the years years ahead, and thank you for those encouraging words about what you have for her in the future, and we we agree with that. And Lord, thank you that whatever whatever place we're in, whether we're in a storm or it feels like calm waters, thank you that you are you're the Lord. Jesus came to earth pursuing us as a person, lived like we lived, like we lived, died and rose from the dead. And because of you, Jesus, we have hope on this earth and in the life to come. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Great, we better finish there. And if you've got children to collect, do nip over and do that. And but but also do do pray. You know, if you're inspired, um, uh, something's moved you, then do take some time to pray as well. Oh, and over here, yeah, have these these lovely uh, things that Liz has made. Uh, just here. <laughs>